The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Today, good morning, Bereans. We're continuing our study this morning in Thessalonians, and we're looking at this section that goes from verse, or chapter 2 from verse 1 to 12. And, <clears throat> excuse me, so far we've seen that the Thessalonians were troubled because they're receiving correspondence. They received a letter supposedly from Paul telling them that the day of the Lord had already come. And this was upsetting them. Now, that alone, I think, should tell us that they must not have seen the day of the Lord as the end of time, the destruction of the world, you know, the wiping out of everything we see, because that would have been kind of stupid to believe that. All they had to do was look out the window, oh, the world's still there. I guess it didn't come yet. So they had a different view than most people today have of the day of the Lord. So what Paul does is he reminds them of what he's already told them about the day of the Lord. He tells them that's not going to happen. It's not going to come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, I see the rebellion that he's talking about here as a first century event. The Jewish zealots rebelling against Rome. And there are many today who believe that the the rebellion, the apostasy is in our future and it's the church is going to apostatize from the Lord. Um, People are looking forward to that, I guess. I, I don't understand that, but let's put it in the context where it belongs, okay? The man of lawlessness, in my opinion, my view is John Levy of Gishala. Now, you got a different opinion? That's okay. All right? You, you pick who you want it to be or, you know, do your research and, and figure it out. It's not that big a deal, okay? The restrainer of the man of lawlessness, I said I believe was the legitimate, the legitimate priesthood of Israel. Now, there is a lot of disagreement as to who the actual players are in this text. But the main thing I think that we need to see is that this was a first century event. The zealots rebelled against Rome, causing Rome to launch a three and a half year siege that ended in the total destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now, most contemporary writers, as I said, see this as a future to us event that takes place at the end of time. G.K. Beale writes this. While the Antichrist, and he's talking about this text in 2 Thessalonians that never mentions anything about Antichrist, okay, but everybody reads the Antichrist into this text. While the Antichrist deception in this age, and by this age he means right now, okay, in this age is partial and incognito through false teachers, his deceit at the end of history will be more universal than ever. So he's looking forward to something at the end of history when this is all going to happen. The problem with this view is it destroys audience relevance. It's saying that the teachings that Paul was giving to the Thessalonians had no real meaning, no real value, because nothing was going to happen for thousands of years. I don't even know why Paul told them about it. They thought it happened. He said, too silly, it's, not, it's thousands of years in the future, don't worry about it. Now, for our study this morning, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12. Now, we saw in verse 8 that Yeshua is going to kill and bring to nothing 
the man of lawlessness at his second coming. Verse 8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom Yeshua will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now this happened in AD 70 when the Lord came in judgment on Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, Judaism for all time was ended, this ended the old covenant and consummated the new covenant. Now, as we get into 9 through 12, what Paul really does is he kind of circles back and he gives us more details about the man of lawlessness and the power behind him. And verse 9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders. <clears throat> now, the word coming here is parousia. Now, the previous verse talked about Christ's parousia, and what it would accomplish. And now he uses the exact same word, parousia, and he talks about the man of lawlessness's parousia and what that will accomplish. He tells us his coming is by the activity of Satan. And the word activity here is the Greek energeia, which Thayer says is a working efficiency. And then Thayer says this, in the New Testament, it is used only of superhuman power, whether of God or the devil. All right, now keep that in your mind. This, this word he's using here, energeia, is used of superhuman power, God or the devil. So this man of lawlessness is operating with superhuman power, which comes from Satan. Now we need to, hear, to pause here for a minute, and talk about Satan. Who or what is Satan? There are those within the preterist community that believe, I could say that about any doctrine, okay? Because preterism is like a big umbrella, and we got all kinds of beliefs under this umbrella that the Lord's returned, but we got all kinds of different ideas. Well, some of them, <coughs> excuse me, they don't believe that Satan is a real spiritual being. They simply, every time the word Satan, they say it just refers to a human adversary. Okay? Now, the Hebrew word Satan means adversary. Okay? That's what it means. So some will say, well, it's just a human adversary of some kind. Well, let's look at the Scripture and see if we can bear that out. Uh, let's see what it has to say about that. Let me ask you this. Where would you find the first use of Satan in, this, in the Tanakh? Okay, we got Job. What else? Huh? Garden. So that would be Genesis 3. <clears throat> yeah, right. Okay. I think most people would say, well, well, Genesis 3. Well, Satan is not used in Genesis. We'll, we'll circle back to that. Okay, but the first use is in Numbers 22, 21, and 22. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the prince, princes of Moab. <clears throat> but God's anger was kindled. Because he went, and the angel of Yahweh took his stand in the way as his adversary, Satan. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. So the word adversary here is Satan. This is its first use. But who is called Satan here? The angel of the Lord. Does that surprise you? Very first use. So the angel of the Lord is Satan? No, the Hebrew word Satan is not a proper noun in the Tanakh. And as such, the term is not used to refer to a cosmic 
arch enemy of Yahweh. Satan isn't a proper name. It's a function or an office with the primary meaning of adversary or challenger. So Satan describes a particular action or role, often in the context of opposition or judgment. Now we see that in Job, Job 2, 1 and 2. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. And Satan also came among them to present himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Now, so here we have Satan, and we have the sons of God. So it says, The sons of God came. And who is one of those sons of God? It's Satan. Now, the vast majority of Old Testament scholars who are experts in the field of A&E literature conclude that what we see here in Job is that Satan is one of the members of the divine council of Yahweh. Now, if you're not familiar with the divine council, you need to go to our website, go to the studies page, all the way near the bottom, we've got a whole section on divine council. Alright? So, this is, a, this is God's family. This is God's counsel that He created, that He ministers with, that He communicates with. And we see here, He's not Yahweh's archenemy. He's a member of the divine council who had some sort of a role, uh, maybe as a heavenly court prosecutor. There are no passages in the Tanakh where the word Satan refers to Yahweh's divine archenemy. None. You're not going to get that. Okay, in the Tanakh. <clears throat> if you look up all the uses of Satan in the Tanakh, it'll blow away the assumption that that's a technical term, Satan, that always applies to some supernatural being, some single Satan. The term Satan is attached to several different beings. So the technical term Satan does not always apply to the same supernatural being, a single Satan in the Tanakh, nor does it refer to a cosmic Arch enemy of Yahweh. But when you come to the intertestamental literature, or the Second Temple literature, which are the books written by the Jews between Malachi and the time of Yeshua, this picture begins to change. In this literature, Satan begins to take on an evil persona. And we also see that there are many Satans. Now, this intertestamental literature, the, which would include the Apocrypha, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Pseudepigrapha, it says considerably more about Satan than the Tanakh does. Ancient concepts of Satan and demons developed during the Second Temple period. Works from the period like First Enoch, Jubilees, the life of Adam and Eve, increasingly focus on the character of Satan as a celestial archenemy of God. And these works are also retold in stories of Israel's history and recounted Satan's influence in certain events in Israel's history. So we see quite a change in the view of Satan in the intertestamental period. And this is how the Jews viewed Satan and demons. And that brings us to what the New Testament had to say about Satan. So we go to Matthew 4.1. It says, Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So as soon as the New Testament starts, we see the devil and Satan 
as adversaries of Yeshua and God's people. Now, most of the New Testament references to demon possession will appear in the Gospels, and they really represent an outburst of satanic opposition to Yahweh's work in Christ. And demon possession seems to be something that happened only during the time of Christ and the apostles. And it was there for the purpose of manifesting the power of Christ over the demonic world. The New Testament shows us a developing picture of Satan as the archenemy of God in extra-biblical works written prior to and contemporary with the New Testament documents. They parallel this development. In the New Testament, the word devil is used 32 times, Satan's used 33 times, Belial is used once, Beelzebub is used seven times. Look at Revelation 12, 7 through 9. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels, fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So here we see that Satan is that ancient serpent in Genesis 3. So he's there, but we don't see that word Satan used in Genesis 3. He says he's called the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, let's go back to Genesis 3, because that's where most people think this whole thing begins. We just saw in Revelation 12, 9, that the serpent is Satan. And I believe this serpent is a divine being. This is not a member of the animal kingdom. This is not a snake sitting in a tree. You see all those pictures, you know, Eve's sitting there and there's a snake talking to her. Uh, no, forget about that. I think this is a member of the divine council. This is a watcher. This is a divine being who is choosing to oppose Yahweh's plan for humanity by just trying to get humans to disobey Yahweh. So they'll either be killed or removed from Eden, Yahweh's counsel and family. So, you know, Yahweh is there with the divine counsel for how long, we have no idea. But at a point in time, he creates man and brings man in, and they're all like, who's this guy? We don't like him in our family. Let's get rid of this guy. All right, so it worked. They got him kicked out of the garden, okay? And the word serpent here is from the Hebrew word nakash, which according to Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser is most likely a triple entendre, which is a word or phrase that has three different meanings at once. The root of nakash, the Hebrew letters nun, het, and sheen, is the basis for a noun, a verb, and an adjective in Hebrew. If you take nakash as pointing to the noun, the word would be serpent. And that's a valid translation. That's how most people translate it. But you need to keep in mind that servant's not a member of the animal kingdom. If you were to take it as a verb, it would mean deceiver or diviner. So nakash could imply deceiver. Well, that option certainly fits the story. As an adjective, though, it means bronze or shining one. And in our text, it is ha-nakash, the shining one. And luminosity is a characteristic of a divine being, right? You see this all the time, and they're glowing, and their clothes were white, as you know, you see this. That's luminosity, that's a divine being in the Hebrew Bible, and in the A&E text. Luminosity is not a characteristic of man or animals. This is a divine being who she's talking to. 
you, you got to wonder, is Eve going to talk and carry on a conversation with a snake? I, don't, I, I mean, I just don't see it, okay? <laughs> but she would talk to a divine being. I mean, they're there in the garden. This is something normal, all right? They lived in the garden with God. They were familiar with these divine beings. All right, back to our text in Revelation. It says, now war arose in heaven. So this war is taking place in heaven. In this text, Michael is depicted as warring on behalf of Israel and is called Israel's protector in Daniel 12.1. Michael is the patron angel of Israel. So Israel's protector here is fighting against Rome's prince, who is Satan. So it seems by this time, Satan has moved from adversary in the divine council to a spiritual power that was behind Rome. You know, when God divided up the nations, he put a God over each one of them. All right? Seventy nations put 70 gods over them, and they ruled over these nations. So each one of these nations, they had kings doing things, but you had a power in heaven over these kings controlling and carrying out what's going on. Now, most scholars of Revelation teach that the beast represents Rome, and the dragon that gives the power to the beast is Satan. So it seems as this watcher, now known as Satan, has turned against Yahweh and is ruling over Rome, and he's trying to destroy Yeshua and God's people. And Paul tells the Ephesians this. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, first of all, notice that he says this struggle is not against flesh and blood. And in the Greek, this is literally blood and flesh. Now, is Paul saying this is not a physical battle? Or is he saying it's not a philosophical one? See, that's the view that those who hold to Satan being a human adversary. This is just a philosophical battle. But if you look at the four other uses of this phrase, flesh and blood, in the New Testament, it's always referring to humanity versus the spiritual. So in Ephesians 6, I see Paul saying their struggle is not with humanity. It's not with mere human power. So what is the struggle with? Well, first of all, he says it's against rulers and authorities. And both of these words, these titles, can be used of human beings, and they're also used of spiritual powers. So those first two don't help us a lot. But then he says this, against the cosmic powers. And cosmic powers here is the Greek word kosmokarator, which according to Strong's Concordance means a world ruler, an epithet of Satan. Thayer says it means Lord of the world, prince of this age, the devil and his demons. Now here's what's important. This is the only use in the New Testament. Cosmocrator. It's the only place you'll find it in the New Testament. But it's used in the Testament of Solomon, a pseudepigraphal work, of spiritual beings. And if you look at your dictionary of deities and demons in the Bible, you all have that dictionary, right? You need it because you never... <laughs> I'll tell you, you want to have some fun, just pick up the dictionary of de deities and demons in the Bible and you'll be amazed <laughs> what's in that Bible that you're not aware of, okay? Well, they say the Cosmocrator means Lord of the world, world ruler. It occurs in pagan literature as the epithet for gods, rulers, and heavenly bodies. 
Now, we have to ask ourselves, okay, why would Paul use this word that is used only here in the New Testament, but it's used in other literature for spiritual beings if he didn't try to tell us this was spiritual beings? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, Paul goes on to say, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So again, he said these forces are spiritual, they're not human, they're in heavenly places, which denotes the spiritual realm, the place where Yahweh dwells. So those who hold to the view that Satan is not a real spiritual being, but instead is just merely referring to a personification of sinfulness in the human heart, or to wicked human beings, they'd say Satan is merely our own internal sinful human nature or inclination to sin. But how does that fit with the Lord? In Matthew 4.1, Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So is Yeshua being tempted by his own sinful nature? Do this. Do this. No! He doesn't have a sinful nature. He is sinless, okay? So to go there is an attack on the deity of Christ. And hopefully you don't want to go there, all right? Well, these folks would say that Christ's adversaries were the Jews. All right, they're not, Christ's adversaries, not some spiritual being, it's just the Jews. Well, could Satan here represent the Jews? Look at uh, Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. How are the Jews doing that? And he said to him, all these I will give you. How are the Jews doing that? If you will fall down and worship me. Then Yeshua said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now we have to ask, would the Jews ask Christ to worship them? No. So is Christ carrying on a conversation here with himself? You know, throughout the context, the tempter or the devil is given personal attributes and clearly distinguished from Yeshua as being another person. And nowhere in this context do we get the idea that the devil is merely referring to a sinful human nature of Christ. You know, it's kind of ridiculous to think that a sinful nature within Christ would demand Christ, worship Christ, and if he did, Christ would give Christ the nations. Satan was ruling the nations, and sinful human beings could not make this offer to Christ. So those who deny the existence of Satan or demons, they want to make everything the result of natural occurrences. Mark 6.13 says, And they cast out many demons, and anointed many with oil, who were sick, and they healed them. So here we see a contrast between demons and sickness. They're not casting out mental illness. And I think this view of Satan being just a human being, I just think it's, it's very unbiblical. All right? I don't think this is what the Bible teaches. And I think that modern science has caused many believers to question or downright deny the spiritual. I mean, to those in the ancient Near East, everything was spiritual. To us, nothing is. So if someone believes in God and angels... Why is it hard to believe in devil and demons? I don't, I mean, I always ask people when, who believe this, well, Satan's just, you know, just a human. Well, who is God? Is God real? 
Is there a supernatural being called God? Because they seem to want to limit the supernatural. And I, I really think that our text in Thessalonians further refutes this view of Satan as being a human adversary because it says, uh, again, first of all, they use this word activity here, which is energeia. And again, it means working, it means operation, action. But in the New Testament, it is typically used of that which is supernatural, either of the enabling power of God or of satanic operations. Well, then in our text, he says, with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, these are some special terms here, okay? Power here is the Greek word dunamis. That's where we get our word dynamite. It means power, it means might, strength, force. It's often translated miracle. It speaks of inherent ability that carries the potential to perform or accomplish a task. Signs is from the Greek word semion, and it focuses on the deeper meaning of the miracle. Why was that miracle given? What's that power for? It points to something. A sign is a miracle that conveys a truth. And then he uses the word wonders here, which is from the Greek word teros, and it underscores the effect of those who are witnesses. The, it, the people who are seeing it, it's like, they're wow, that's amazing. Now here's what's important here. These are the exact same terms that are used to describe the work of Christ. Okay? The exact same terms. If we look at Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. So God is demonstrating that this is the Christ. How is He doing that? With mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through Him. So these are supernatural acts of God. They're there to demonstrate who Christ is. We also see these same terms used of the apostles in Hebrews 2.4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So the combination of miracle signs and wonders appears in various New Testament texts but only here do they refer to satanic activity. So these are the very things God used to authenticate His message and lay the foundation for the church, and they're supernatural. And this ties in perfectly with Yeshua's words in the Olivet Discourse. And there's a lot of similarities to 2 Thessalonians 2 and Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 24. Christ says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now we learn from Josephus that many such impostors did arise at that time and promised deliverance from God. According to Josephus, there was a great number of false prophets who implored the people to wait on the deliverance from God in order to keep them from deserting the city. So they're using these you know, false prophets, just as the Lord said. So the combination of these terms are used to point to a supernatural component, one with very definite and important religious implications, especially since the performance of such miracles implies divine power. Now, in the life of the Lord, and in the early church, 
These same things were used to authenticate the message and the messenger. And now Paul calls these false signs and wonders. False here is shudas. It means a falsehood, a lie. It may refer just to the signs, but it's probably used of all three of the nouns, power, signs, and wonders. It shows the effect of miracles, not the nature of them. They're real miracles that are designed to deceive. So shudas is a word Yeshua used of Satan in John 8.44. It's false. It's false stuff they're doing. So if Satan is a mere human, as these people say, how is he empowering the man of lawlessness with these supernatural abilities? How's he doing that? I just don't think that adds up. Look at verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Who are the ones who are being deceived here? It's those who are perishing. All right? The elect are not being deceived. That's what the Lord just said. We read from Matthew 24. If it were possible, deceiving, it wasn't possible. They didn't deceive the elect. The man of lawlessness is empowered by Satan himself to promote widespread deception, lawlessness, and rebellion. He says, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Now, this is not in the abstract sense, but a reference to the person and work of Christ. You know, Yeshua said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Now, he says that they don't, they won't, they don't love the truth until they won't be saved. When we see that word saved, we automatically think of eternal life. You know, we connect them. But if you're familiar with the Tanakh, it was not used that way in the Tanakh. It's mostly used of deliverance, physical deliverance. And I think it's a combination here. They won't believe God, so they're not going to be saved. They're not going to be saved from the destruction of Jerusalem. They're not going to be saved from damnation, eternal damnation. So it's, it's a, you could use it both ways here. They refuse. They're, they're in the city. When the city goes down, they'll suffer physical destruction and eternal destruction. He says in verse 11, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. This is a present active indicative used as a future. And notice that it is God who is sending the strong delusion. Why would God do that? Why would God send somebody a delusion? Why would He head them in the wrong direction? This is a judicial act. We have to see it as that. God is judging these people by sending a strong delusion. The word strong here describes the kind of supernatural and powerful action. This power produces a great delusion. These people are all believing the zealots and what's going on in the city, and they're ready to stand behind that. Now, this reminds me of the divine counsel passage in 1 Kings 22. In 1 Kings 22, Ahab wants to go to war, and you know, so he's asking his counselors, what do you think? Well, should I go to war or not? And all his prophets are saying what? Yeah, go, you'll be victorious. Go do it, go do it. And he goes, ah, is there anybody else here? Is there any prophet from the Lord we could get to get some insight on? And so he gets Micaiah. Micaiah says, therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. And all the hosts of heaven standing beside him. Okay, so he's getting a throne room vision here. 
Because he's a prophet. The prophets had access to the throne room of God. They would see God. They would get these visions. Yahweh's sitting on the throne. And all the hosts of heaven are standing there. Who are these hosts of heaven? This is the divine council. These are watchers. These are gods. And they're standing there on the right and on the left. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab? that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. I want to kill Ahab. Who's going to get him to go to Ramoth, you know, go up to Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said, so the hosts of heaven are saying, how about this? How about we do that? You know, they're all putting in their two cents, and how are we going to kill Ahab? Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh, saying, I'll entice him. And Yahweh said to him, by what means? And he said, I'll go out, and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, ah, that's a good idea. You entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Go do that. That's a good idea. So the prophets of Ahab are saying, you know, they're putting on horns, and they're, you'll push them back, you'll win, you'll do all this. And guess what? They didn't. And Ahab got killed, all right? Because in order to judge Ahab, God put a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets to get him to go where he wanted to go so he could kill him. And God is doing the same thing here to the unbelieving Jews in the first century as He stirred them up to fight against Rome. He's putting a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets so that they may believe what is false. Now this is literally so they may believe the lie. Now let me ask you something. Why would God send them a delusion so they would believe what is false? Why would He do that? The very next verse tells us, in order that, this is a Hinnah purpose clause, God did this in order that all may be condemned. I want to condemn them. I want to destroy them. So I'll put this lying spirit. They'll tell them everything's good. This is the way it's supposed to go. We're going to beat Rome. We're going to overcome Rome. We're going to get ourselves set free. And it didn't happen. Now, the nature of this condemnation that he's talking about has already been described in chapter 1 where he said this. He talks about Christ going to judge the adversaries. He said, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Yeshua. So God is using the man of lawlessness who is empowered supernaturally by Satan as a means of judgment. He is using them to punish those that are perishing. Those who refuse to love His Son. Now let me ask you something, believers, and I want you to really, please, hang with me and think through this. Why were they condemned? Why did God condemn them? Well, the text says, because they didn't believe the truth. They didn't believe the truth. So let me ask you this. Do you have to believe the truth in order to be saved? Do this. Do this. <laughs> Do you have to believe the truth in order to be saved? Yes, you do. I mean, if this is not a theme of the New Testament, I don't know what is. Notice what John wrote. John Eleazar, a.k.a. Lazarus. In John 20, 30 and 31. Now Yeshua did many other signs. He, he went through the gospel, told all the signs that the Lord did. But he did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So 
every, he didn't get everything down, but he said, these are written so that you may believe. The signs I've given you, I put these signs in here for the purpose of you believing. Believing what? That Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So what does John say that we need to do to receive eternal life? We have to believe. And that by believing, in the Greek this is kai hinapistuo, which is a purpose clause, in order that by believing you may have life. The goal of Lazarus writing these truths about Yeshua is so that we may personally hear the gospel and believe it unto eternal life. If we miss that, we miss everything. We have to believe the gospel. Why am I stressing this? <laughs> I'm stressing the necessity of faith because there are those, others, again, under the umbrella of preterism, who say you don't have to believe the gospel. You don't need faith. And these people are what are called universalists. They're universalists because they believe everybody's going to be saved. Doesn't matter what they do, what they think, what they everybody's going to get saved. Universalism, the teaching that God, through the atonement of Yeshua, will ultimately bring reconciliation between himself and all people throughout history. And this reconciliation will occur regardless of whether they have trusted or rejected Yeshua as Savior during their lifetime. Doesn't matter. They can hate God. They can blaspheme God. Doesn't matter. Everybody's going to be saved. They teach that everybody's be saved. Now, they don't have to believe. It doesn't matter. That, that's not part of it. And people, this is another gospel. This is a false gospel that doesn't require faith that the Bible demands. John 3.16. Everybody's familiar with this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. It didn't say He gave His Son so everybody would be saved. No, whoever believes won't perish but have eternal life. Again, it's only those who believe in Him who don't perish. All who don't believe perish. Look what He says in verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. You got that part? Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because, why? Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So people, the unbelievers condemned. They're under the wrath of God. Our text in Thessalonians says, all may be condemned who do not believe the truth. So universalism says nobody's condemned. The Bible says everybody's condemned that doesn't believe the truth. John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, there's no he in the text. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What's he saying? What does I am remind you of? Go take you back to Exodus and Moses. Who shall I say sent us? I am that I am. 
Ehiya, Asher, Ehiya, and the Hebrew, I am who I am. Tell him that. So he, here Yeshua is saying, unless you believe that I am God, you'll die in your sins. There's only one thing that prevents you from dying in your sins and being damned forever, and that is belief that Yeshua is Yahweh. Belief in the truth, nothing more is what separates the saved from the damned. Now, understanding this is understanding what the Bible teaches. All right, that's what, I mean, it's clear. I can show you a thousand verses. Believe, believe, believe. This is what's the gospel. This is what they went out and called people to believe. But we have someone in the preterist community, Cindy Coates. She's a professed preterist from the ministry, The Porch. And she says, you don't have to believe. Okay? And, and, you know, she's a preterist, so we just welcome her with open arms. Well, look what she teaches. Go full screen for me, please. Uh, I got no sound. How come? No. I was actually studying 2,000 years ago. She doesn't look that old. So she's saying she was born saved, okay? But the Bible teaches that we are all born in sin, separated from a holy God. How could she be saved 2,000 years ago when you, listen, you cannot be saved until you believe, okay? Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of your own doing. It's a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So Paul's saying he was saved by grace through faith. Now when he says through faith, he's talking about the instrumentality of salvation. The biblical ordo salutis. Are you familiar with that term? The order of salvation. This is the biblical order. We don't always see things this way because we don't know all what God's doing, but okay, God works in our lives God brings us who are dead to life. He gives us life. He gives us faith. And we trust Him. Then we're saved. That's the order of salutis. Belief, faith is our response. But that response is something created in us by God. But how do you know a person saved? Because they believe the gospel. That's how we know they're a Christian. By grace you've been saved through the instrumentality of faith. Faith is understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. We have to understand, we have to hear the gospel, understand it, and then believe it. You can't believe what you never heard or don't understand. They can't believe what they don't know. So faith is belief, it's trust in Christ, and Christ alone for our salvation. Notice what Peter preached. Peter says, in him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So who, who receives forgiveness of sins? All who believe. The whole world is not saved, people. The whole world is not going to be saved. 
Cindy goes on to say this. That's it. See, the stripper does not have to believe anything. She doesn't need to see herself as a sinner. She's already righteous. Everybody's righteous. I think, didn't you say why even tell them that? Yeah, why bother? I mean, what's, we don't have to tell anybody anything. They're all, everybody's good. They're all good. There's no need to share the gospel. Has God reconciled the whole world to himself? Well, Cindy Coates says that the world has been reconciled to God, and she takes world here as every human being. She is saying that all people are righteous. We don't need to tear the gospel with you. We just need to let them know that they're righteous. She says that people sin because they have bad habits, not because they're sinners. It's just a bad habit you picked up. Well, let's look at the text that Cindy is using to justify her universalism. She's quoting from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, the new has come. Who is the new creation? It is those in Christ. It is not everyone. In Christ is one of Paul's favorite metaphors to describe the Christian. Those who believe are in Christ. That is our position goes on to say in verse 18, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, that is Christ, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God, through Christ, was reconciling us. Who's the us in this text? It is Christians, those in Christ. It's believers. Only believers are reconciled to God. Yeshua became believers' reconciliation. Now they must become the means of sharing the gospel of reconciliation with others. He said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He doesn't say, go and tell everybody they're already reconciled. He says, go and beg people to be reconciled with God. This is a present passive imperative. The passive voice could be translated, let God reconcile you. Allow yourselves to be reconciled. God only reconciles those who believe. Not all people believe, and those who don't believe perish. Now someone might say, well, The text says that God was reconciling the world to Himself. God was reconciling the world to Himself. Yeah, that's what it says. What does it mean? Who's the world? 
Does world mean every single individual without exception and without distinction? A lot of people want to take it that way, right? What's the Bible teach about the term world? The term world here is the Greek cosmos. And if you pick up all uses of cosmos, you'll see that it's used in different senses. In our text, it's simply a re- referred to humanity. And I think what he's really saying here, God is reconciling by the world, he's saying Jew and Gentile. The Jews thought only they were God's people. When he says world, he's, it's beyond you, Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles. It's the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It often has a relative rather than an absolute meaning. For example, in John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So was everybody in the world going after Yeshua? Was everybody equally, without distinction, without exception, going after Christ? No, look who he's speaking to, the Pharisees. They didn't go after him. So it's obvious that the world does not mean every single person. In Acts 19.27, he says, There's danger not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. She, Artemis, whom all Asia and the world worships. Did everybody in the world worship Diana at that time? Or Artemis? No. So what does world mean? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's using world again to refer to Jew and Gentile. All nationalities. If God was going to reconcile every single person, it would mean, listen, that He loved every single person. This is why you're not going to find a Calvinist becoming a Universalist. Because we know God doesn't love everybody. All right? If God loved everybody equally, without distinction, without exception, why would Yeshua say this to his disciples in John 17, 9? I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. What? How could he not pray for the world? If God loved the world, wouldn't he pray for it? Now, listen. I realize that most people believe that God loves everybody. That's kind of a universal thing, right? You hear, oh, God loves everybody. Every single person, He loves all of them. And they're all, go tell people God loves you, God loves you, God. I, I don't know if He loves them or not. How do I know that? The idea that God loves everybody is a modern belief. Okay? If you went back and searched the writings of the church fathers... Go look at the Reformers. Go look at what the Puritans write. You're going to search their literature in vain to find any such concept of God loving everybody. The fact that the love of God is a truth for the saints only, that's what they, that's what they teach. With the exception of John 3.16, not once in the four Gospels do we read of the Lord Yeshua telling sinners that God loved them. So Christ's whole ministry, he doesn't go, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. No, that's not what he taught them. Here's what's even more fascinating to me. The book of Acts. Acts records the evangelistic efforts of the apostles. They're carrying the gospel. In the book of Acts, the love of God is never mentioned. They never went to somebody and said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. No, no. You're a sinner under the wrath of God. You need to believe on the Lord. 
And all that seems odd to me. The Lord doesn't tell people that. The apostles don't people that. People, when we come to the epistles, which are addressed to the saints, we have a full presentation of that truth. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Now, God's love is restricted here to the members of His own family. If He loves all men, the distinction here and the limitation here is meaningless. God disciplines those He loves. He loves everybody, so He disciplines everyone. No, that's not what it's saying. God only chastens whom He loves, which is a reference to believers, the elect. Lazarus wrote his gospel so that people would believe. These are written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. People, it is only by believing in Christ that anyone will ever have life. Apart from faith, men perish. And we are called to present the gospel to the world. We're not to tell people they're righteous. They're sinners in need of a Savior. I see universalism as an attack on the gospel. As an attack on Scripture. Over and over, the Bible calls men to believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ for salvation. But universalism says you don't need to believe. You know, when the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Cindy would say, nothing. You're already saved. Everybody's saved. Well, that's not how they responded. Paul said, believe on the Lord, and you will be saved. So Paul had a different idea, okay? But the universe just answers, you know, don't do anything. You're all good. Nothing to do. Brians, I plead with you, I beg you, just because somebody says they're a preterist, that doesn't make them your brother or sister in Christ, okay? Eschatology, in my mind, is not a primary doctrine, okay? You need to find out what do they believe about salvation? What do they believe about Christ? Those are things that make the difference, okay? How is a person saved? That's what we want to know. You believe the Lord came? Okay, what else do you believe? We don't care about it. It's like we don't care about what else they believe. As long as there are prayers, hey, there's not many of us, so we'll just welcome you right in the club. Look at John's words, 2 John 1, 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him, takes part in his wicked works. So John instructs him, if someone comes along teaching something different than Christ taught, than what the apostles taught, don't receive him into your house. This is the idea of fellowship. This is the idea of hospitality. Don't give him a greeting. That's pretty specific, isn't it? John is saying that to show hospitality or even greet these false teachers is to fellowship with them. It's to partake literally in their evil works. Whoever greets them takes part of their wicked works. We not only greet them, we do conferences with them, we get involved in, you know, oh, there, we promote them. Now I realize that people might not know what she believes, but now you do. Okay? 
or not to even give a verbal encouragement to apostates. People, if truth matters, we got to learn to stand on it. Okay? And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying we need to separate from everybody who disagrees with us. I'm not saying that at all. Okay? There's a lot. You can think the man of lawlessness was, you know, the Pope. I don't care. I'm not going to separate with you. There's a lot of secondary issues. Okay? Again, to me, eschatology. It's important. But I'm not going to break fellowship with you if you're looking for the Lord to come back in the future. You're just wrong. Okay? But when you're teaching a universalist doctrine that we don't need the gospel, we don't need faith in Christ, that is a damnable heresy against the truth of Scripture. And it's time that Christians wake up and say, we can't partake with these people. Let's go back to our text. I'm glad I don't have a blood pressure cuff right now. <laughs> I, think, I think things are a little high, okay? Yahweh, the lawless one, is by the activity of Satan, with all powers. and this, this man of lawlessness was being empowered by Satan to bring judgment on the first century Christ-rejecting Jews. This rebellion was the reason that Rome destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. Christ came in the clouds like He said He would. That's a reference to a judgment coming on disobedient Israel. Contemporary writers destroy this text by removing it from its first century context. Stephen J. Cole writes this, As in the book of Revelation, some of the details of Paul's words here are debatable. But don't miss the overall picture, which is clear. All right, listen, this is clear. Jesus is coming back bodily in power and glory. That's the clear meaning of the text, right? First of all, where do you get any idea about bodily stuff in this text? I mean, that is, you talk about Isa Jesus, okay? Listen, if this, if, if the message to the Thessalonians that Paul was giving them was Jesus is coming back bodily in power and glory, and when he does, he's going to win big time, but it's not yet because we're still looking for it. If that's the message, then Paul greatly deceived them. It's been over 2,000 years and the church is still waiting. The real message in this text is that God is sovereign over all events in time. He's in control of the whole process. You know, this whole thing of the destruction of Jerusalem, we just see it worked out perfectly. The zealots start, you know, rearing up against Rome and God keeps them under control for a while then lets them go full-blown and Rome just comes in and squashes them. So he could carry out his sovereign will. And he wiped out whoever did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. He did this so he could bring judgment on them. God used the zealous to bring Rome against Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy that he made in Matthew 24. Yeshua said this, Yeshua left the temple and he's going away when his disciples come to him and they point out the buildings of the temple. All right. Get the focus. It's about the temple, right? He leaves the temple. They point out the buildings of the temple. He answered them, You see these? What are these? The buildings of the temple. Truly, I say to you, talking to his disciples, 
there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Guess what? It happened just like that. About 40 years later. And God used the zealots to cause the rebellion, to cause Rome to destroy Jerusalem, fulfilling this prophecy. And this all happened as Yeshua said it would in that generation. This text is not something we can throw off into the future, people, unless we want it to have no meaning at all. Okay, He's writing to the Thessalonians. What did they think? What did He mean to them? We have to see that. Okay, Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace to us, Lord. I thank You for this text. Lord, it just seems so clear to me. You're addressing it to the Thessalonians. Lord, help us when we read our Bible to understand it's written to other people. There's plenty in there for us for learning, for education, for instruction in righteousness. But help us to put it in the context where it belongs, Lord, in the first century and understand what you're saying to those people. We're not looking for a man of lawlessness. We're not looking for a future Antichrist. We're not looking for the church to revolt and turn all away from God. We're not looking for destruction. We're thankful, Lord, for what we have. We live in the kingdom of God. We're kings and priests unto you, royal citizens. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your grace to us. Amen. Amen. Comments? Questions? Yeah. Well, you know, you know I, I, I get a little wound up about this because if the gospel's not important, we're all wasting our time, people. We're all wasting our time. And it just blows my mind that because someone says, I believe the Lord returned. Oh, well, that's great. You're part of our family. Really? What else do they believe? If they believe you cannot be saved unless you're baptized by a Church of Christ minister, <laughs> that's works. How do, we, how do we join hands and fellowship with these people? when they don't even believe the truth of the gospel. How do we do that? How did the first one ever get saved? How's what? How did the first church of Christ ever get yeah, saved? Yeah, I'm not sure. How. <laughs> somebody had to start, well, somebody had to get appointed, I guess, to the, you know. But I mean, that's, you know, that's, it's sad, but that's the teaching. You know, you can't just be baptized by any Joe Blow or any preacher. What you got to be baptized by a church of Christ minister. Right. you got to get wet to get saved. Uh, this is from uh, Gary and Chris, PA. Good morning, Dave. I was able to get the last copy off of Amazon when mentioned that you thought it might have seen one there. Also, a little Sunday morning humor. <laughs> okay, he sent me a picture. Uh, well, a meme, I guess. But mm, mm, mm. Uh, I get confused here on the... Make sure these are the same. Thank you, David. This is from Dana. He says... In the garden, Adam and Eve didn't realize, notice, or see their nakedness until after they'd eaten the forbidden fruit. Is it possible that was because they were illuminated beings prior to the fall with the radiance and glow that their physical body formed? Perhaps in our original creative form, we, didn't have, we did have an illumination much like the divine council. 
I don't know. I just think they were innocent, and they just that's not a big deal. You know, they just didn't care. It wasn't, it wasn't an issue, and it didn't become an issue until their eyes were open. He says, today we actually carry a radiance about ourselves. We don't see within the visual light spectrum ability, abilities. We do have what some call an aura, which is actually an electromagnetic field created by our life force energy. Uh, it can be seen by clarion photography. Yeah, there's probably a lot to that. I don't understand, but I'll tell you this. When I'm in fellowship with another believer, you know it, okay? There's just a communication there that this is a brother or sister in Christ. How does Satan being defeated at the cross reconcile with this passage? Um, Satan wasn't defeated at the cross. He wasn't. If he was defeated at the cross, what happened the next 40 years? Well, what, what, what spiritual battle were they fighting? Why did Paul, you know, Satan has a roaring lion, Peter says, seeks and we, why all that? That's a false understanding that he was defeated at the cross. The cross and the second coming are what's called the Christ event. It's a 40-year second exodus transition period. It began at the cross. Christ said it's finished because the price was paid. He went to the Father. If you're familiar with the high priest terminology, he's our high priest. He goes into the Holy of Holies. Israel did not understand that they were saved or redeemed until the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies, realizing that God had accepted the sacrifice and they were saved. So our high priest comes out of the Holy of Holies at AD 70, at the end of the 40 years. That's when salvation was complete. And all through the scripture, we're told, you know, you don't have salvation until the end of the age. Until that age ended and the new began, salvation, redemption was not completed. So there's no problem with that because it was, he wasn't defeated at the cross. Uh, this is Norm. Genesis 3.1 says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. This comparison seems to imply the serpent was also beast of the field. How do we square that with the idea of him being shining one or divine being? Yeah, that text does trip people up. It, it's just, I don't think it's making him a beast of the field because he's not. He's a divine being. He's more crafty than, that's all there was at that time. He's more crafty than any of these because he's not part of these. He's a divine being. And if you make him an animal, it just, it just nothing makes sense in that text, okay? This is not some kind of animal. But that is, that is difficult. I know that, you know, that it, it sounds like, well, he's a beast of the field. Is all the talk of the Antichrist done out of lack of knowledge to mislead people from what they should be concentrating on? No, I really, I don't think it's to mislead people. I really don't. I think they're just ignorant, okay? And Antichrist, again, is not a person. You know, it's a spirit that John makes very clear. But they just think it's in our future. That's what everybody hears. Like I said, you don't even need to be a Christian. You, you, you're going to hear about this future coming and this future destruction and the planet being burned up and all this. That's just people hear that. And I don't think they're trying to deceive people. Maybe some people selling books, you know, because <laughs> they keep being wrong and they keep writing a new book. And, you know, he's, I was wrong then, but he's coming again this week. You know, and so they keep putting that out. But I, I just think it's something they believe that, you know, they believe that this is in our future. And how, again, how that makes sense with what Paul wrote. David, aren't some who teach at your yearly conference members of the Church of Christ? No, they're not. Now, they used to be, okay? 
I used to have Church of Christ. Well, they weren't really involved in the Church of Christ at that time. They're former Church of Christ people. But here's what happened. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how much I can say here, but um, Don, I hear from another party that talked to Don, Don Preston, that Don does not believe that you have to be baptized by a Church of Christ minister to be saved. He believes we are saved. We are brothers and sisters. So that would tell me he doesn't believe in baptismal regeneration. But Don and I did conferences together. I had William Bell speak. Those are the only two that ever spoke at our conferences that were Church of Christ. But when these new Church of Christ, and I spoke at a lot of Don's conferences, but then we had some Church of Christ guys they got on to preterism, and they're all excited. And so Don had them speak at his conference, and they're preaching at his conference, and they're telling, you got to be baptized, you know, and they're preaching the Church of Christ doctrine. And I said, I'm out. I'm out. Don never brought it up. William didn't bring it up. These guys did not talk about it. When the new guys started talking about it, I said, I'm out, and I drew the line and stopped fellowshipping with them. So that's, that's my position. Um, Do what? Some of those guys, I mean, on record, didn't know that they wouldn't Yeah, again, because we haven't been baptized by a Church of Christ minister, we're not Christians to a lot of them. I'm not sure why we want to do conferences with that, but. Uh, Wes, you're welcome for. Straightening out that book issue. Yeah, go order that book. It's a, it's a pretty good book. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay. So, uh, someone says, good, good morning. What about the Arminian? Is that not a different gospel? I don't think so. I think it's a confused person. Okay. Now, I, there are some Calvinists who think if you're an Arminian, you're not even saved, which I think is ridiculous, okay? I didn't start out as a Calvinist. I hated Calvinism. I thought it was a despicable doctrine. I fought it. I fought it until I believed it. <laughs> and why do you believe something you hate so bad? I just saw it as the truth of the Word of God. But I don't think someone who's an Arminian is, is not a Christian. Okay. Of course, I would ask them about the gospel, but they think you have to believe the gospel. They just don't understand. They got the ordo salutis backwards. They think, I believe God gave me life. When in fact, God gave them life, therefore they believe. So their order is wrong on the ordo salutis. I don't think that's an issue of, you know, salvation or fellowship. And I know plenty of Arminians that love the Lord. Okay. I just don't think that's an issue. I mean, we again, when you start drawing the line of separation, make sure it's something that's really biblical and it's really important, okay? I don't know who this is from. They say, may Yahweh continue to use you to enlighten his people in the truth. Oh, that's Michael in the Bahamas. Oh, Michael, thanks. Why don't you have me over there? I'd love to visit with you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Michael, have a conference in the Bahamas, okay? We'll be glad to come uh, speak over there. Uh, this is Bob Cruikshank, Jr. He said, to Norm's point, animal and demonic imagery 
were blended in those times. John Walton says, blurred, it was a common A&E way of describing things back then. All right. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate that. Did you get that, Norm? Uh, Bob, get, send, text that to Norm, too. Okay. Someone said, you folks know some people in Minnesota? I don't. I mean, I might, but I don't know that they're from Minnesota, so I really can't. All right, any other questions, comments? We, Gary? Just, uh, you left out today a somewhat important point, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, where Christ says not one stone will remain on another. Well, why would you tear down the buildings? You've defeated the city. Why are the buildings torn down? You left that out. I left it out? Yeah. yeah, I left a lot of things out because I only have so much time. <laughs> Part two. When did that ever start? <laughs> <laughs> Part two. All right, people, I just, you know, I don't mean to get so wound up, but I, I just think this is a very important issue. Very important. Because I think the more we join hands and fellowship with people who you know, attack the gospel, people who don't believe the gospel, the more we dilute the message of salvation. And before you know it, nothing matters, but as long as you believe the Lord came back, we're good. That's not right. Okay? It's not right at all. Not even relevant to salvation? No. Again, I eschatology... Now, if you're a partial preterist, obviously you believe that eschatology is part of the gospel because you think we're not saved because our eschatology is messed up, but I, I challenge you to show me from the Scripture where eschatology is part of the Gospel. Believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ and make sure you got a correct eschatology and you shall be saved. Yeah, bodily return. Make sure you believe in a bodily return, a future resurrection, and you'll be saved. People, come on. Come on. Alright, let's... We need to come up and we need to close with a song here. This song needs to be done as a prayer. We need to be praying for our nation. Uh... Just asking, humbling ourselves before God and asking that He bring a healing to this country. I mean, things are just continuing to spiral out of control and, uh, well, not out of God's control, that's for sure. So just pray that God would raise up godly leaders to you know, set a direction for this country that would get us back to some form of righteousness.